You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Hello, Rob. Hi, Michael. How you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah? How's the kid, little Calvin? He's fantastic. Changing his underpants a lot? Uh, he still wears a diaper. Got a great guest here. Uh, you introduced me to this guy. Yep. Andrew see. McMahon. Yeah. Um, he's got a new album, Upside Down Flowers. When does that come out? Uh, that's coming out November 16th, I think they just announced. Yeah, one of the best stories ever, really. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a, gr- it's a great story. It's inspirational. Um, you'll hear all about it, how he uh, was playing his heart out and it just at the height of his career, really. He was just uh, really starting out and having some success, and then his health just deteriorated. Yep. And he tells that story, and it's a remarkable story, and you'll hear it from him. Uh, he plays a song. This is the first time we've had someone sing on the show. Which is, uh, it sounds really good, and you filmed it. You could probably post that somewhere, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll have that posted. They probably will have already seen it. Inside of You is brought to you by Policy Genius. Roberto, you have insurance? We've talked about this. Um, I do have insurance, but not life insurance. I don't even know where to go. Here's the question. Most of the time I'm online, if, you, if I'm looking for something, it's hard to just pinpoint exactly what you're looking at, whether it's a, a pair of pants or insurance. Insurance, obviously, is more important. But for me... I need somebody to help me out. I need somebody to siphon through all the bullshit. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm not savvy when it comes to computers. So Policy Genius, uh, it does help me. It does. I think it helps anybody who needs insurance. You get quick uh, quotes that they compare from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. It takes two minutes to get a quote. Four million people have used Policy Genius to shop for insurance, Rob. Yeah, it's basically an aggregator. Where you pick the type of insurance you're looking for, and it it gives you a bunch of options. They also compare disability insurance, home insurance, and auto insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. Yep. Whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, start your search at policygenius.com. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Let's get inside of Andrew McMahon. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. I mean, you have to like listening to yourself as a musician, don't you? You know, the craft of it over the years for me has been to find a way to like myself, <laughs> like listening to myself, if that makes sense. So it sort of makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think when you start doing anything, when you write songs in your garage as like a, as a kid, you're not really hearing yourself back, you know? And so, and so for the early days of writing, uh, you know, writing music as like a teenager and then getting signed to a record label as a teenager and then hearing my voice back for the first time in like a professional sense, you, you know, it's shocking at first, and then... Are you very critical? Just as extremely critical as you can be? I don't like that. Can you auto-tune me? Not really in that respect. I think, I think I've think i found over time that the, the best recordings are when you don't overdo that stuff, and when you actually, you know, do a few really good takes and then cut up those takes into the, into the, right. the, the song. But, um, but certainly, like, over years of being on stage and years of being in a studio, you you figure out how to sing, you know, you teach it. It's different than just singing, you know, uh, at at first it's, it becomes a thing of like, okay, well this is, this is actually my instrument 
as a recorded device. I'm sure it's the same with like acting. You know, you, you act in theater when you're growing up or whatever, and then somebody puts a camera on you and you go, oh, that's what I look like when I do this. Like, and that's and, why and, you take an acting for the camera class yeah, in college. Yeah, well, yeah. I, luckily, I'm not. You don't. You wouldn't want to see me act. But uh, I don't know. You got a lot of energy. <laughs> you're enthusiastic. You're passionate. Isn't that what it takes to be an artist in general? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you have to. I mean, you have to be enthusiastic and you have to have energy because you got to you got to fight to 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 do what we do for a living. Andrew McMahon. Thank you for allowing me to be inside of you today. <laughs> get, is, on, get on in there, this brother. This is a real treat. How, by the way, it's like Freddy Krueger's down here. You hear the boiler? It's the yeah. boiler room. It's the, uh, I don't know what it is. It's the pipes down here in the basement. So I, I have my I guess. I didn't even notice. That's you didn't the, even notice? That's my tinnitus. No, I'm just kidding. I have ADD, so I notice everything. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. That's good. Well, this notice. is also your thing, so you know when it, you know when it sounds different. Yeah, it's true. fine. It's just like, you know, uh, Inez is here today helping out, and, uh, you know, the washing machine's going. Where where did you drive from? I came from uh, deep south Orange County, so like right on the border of San Diego and Orange County. I'm t- you had other meetings planned today. I you have, weren't just coming to see me. I have one other meeting. Just one other meeting. Just Is it an important meeting. meeting? I mean, I guess it could be. I you know I I'm I'm no, I no longer I'm publisher free now, so. I'm sort of doing the rounds of, of publisher free. Yeah. What yeah. does that mean? That means that you have no record label. Uh, I do pay. have a, I do have a label. So like the side of the, no, there's two, right? There's the record label and the publishing side. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and for, for years, like in my first band, something corporate, I, I just chose not to do a publishing deal. Um, and then with Jack's mannequin, uh, there was this great sort of young upstart publishing company that, you know, gave me a bunch of dough and said, we want to help grow your career. And, and they did so. And we worked really well together. And then uh, over the course of our, our sort of long relationship, which spanned from the whole career of Jack's Mannequin into, you know, this newest chapter where I'm going under my own name. Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness? Yeah, yeah. Which they... is the coolest title really ever. <laughs> Thanks, Who man. came up with that? Me, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. Why would you do something that someone else came up with? Well, if someone else came up with that, would it be stupid? It's like all of my band names, actually. Like, They're not great. Uh, and this one confuses people. They're like, is it and the Wilderness? I'm like, no, it's in the Wilderness. It's me in the Wilderness. It's What's the, the wilderness. wilderness mean? You know, yeah, then we can get into that, but... Uh, but yeah, long and short, they, they, that small publisher became like this huge, giant publisher and, and, and ended up being gobbled up. And I was able to get out of my deal right before that happened. So I may do a publishing deal. I may just do it myself. Uh, Are they know. pretty lucrative? I mean, you know, the thing about all these, these contracts and, you know, major you know, business contracts in the, in the music business, it's like, you know, you can sometimes get a good chunk of money up front, but you end up making less effectively you know look you know if somebody gives me a huge bag of money that i wouldn't be able to make you know for five or six years then maybe it's worth having it because you could go do things with it but but you end up basically paying that money back out of a smaller chunk that you own less of you know so So you make your money really touring that's what people do they have to tour to make money yeah touring and 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 the the music is you know the I sort of shifted. I, I've been on major labels my whole life. So like, uh, you know, when something corporate, you know, we were coming out of high school and, and drive through records was like an independent label out of Sherman Oaks here approached us. But I was, we were already like in this development deal with a, a major label at the time. And, and so we sort of leveraged that opportunity to get a major label deal. Once I kind of got, and then same thing happened with Jack's mannequin. Eventually it was like, I didn't want to be on these major 
labels anymore because you end up having these flagpoles you have to run up for every decision or people have, you know, 10 different people have opinions. You didn't feel artistic. Like I have no control over this. Well, you know, it's like I did. I always would, I'd always make the music in a, in a bubble for the most part. I always try to really insulate the creative process, but then you finish the record and everybody has something to say. And that becomes really tough to manage, especially when sometimes people say things just so that they can feel important, you know, or feel like they had a hand in it and not to take anything away from the people I worked with, but the, the bureaucracy and the, and the, the sort of system of the big record company just felt cumbersome to me. And, uh, and so, yeah, hysterically I left and, and signed an indie deal with, with Andrew McMahon in the wilderness and we make records really affordably. And how much does a record cost? I mean, I've made records that have cost as much as three, $400,000, you know? Um, and these records that I'm making now cost a lot less cause we're just way more efficient. Like how much, like how much, uh, you know, a, a budget for, for, these last few records will be somewhere between like 60 grand and a hundred grand, which is still a lot of money. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's a chunk of money, but you, you know, you have, they have to sound great. You and know you know what, I mean? what you're doing. It's all about the producer. Of it's course. all about the production, the studio, where you're going, where you feel comfortable, the songs. Totally. It's all about that. And I've been fortunate that it's like, though we're making records for less money, you know, the caliber of people that I'm working with, cause I have a really amazing management team, uh, you know, that hasn't suffered as at all going to the independent labels. And, and, um, you know, when you make records affordably, even though people don't always make it up front, which is sort of was the model of the major labels. It was like these, you know, the producer would be like, well, my fee is a hundred thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Before you even walk in the door. And, and I've been lucky to get a lot of these great producers willing to work, you know, for these lower budgets, knowing that if we have a home run and, and we have a big hit, which we've been incentive. It's yeah. And incentive. I've been, I've been blessed on these last couple of records to have a couple of really big songs that, you know, that you, you make your money on the back end and it, and it, it tends to flow a little bit more freely because you're not spending so much to get there. I just started playing music. I mean, I've been playing music my whole life, but just I never had the voice that you have. So I <laughs> I acted and I wrote and I directed and I just I'd like to sing. I love music more than anything. I was like, God, I wish I was a rock star. If I had Adam Lambert's voice, boy, oh, he's I, singer, I would be yeah. somewhere or your voice. And so I, we started playing music and in my basement and I started right here in this yeah, very right space. Yeah, right here, right here in this little basement. I see some, I see some Crappy drums. drums yeah. Ken plays the drums and all old friends have known each other for many years and we just said, you know, Carl never played the bass. So yeah. G, what's a G? What's an A? This is like a year and a half ago and he was playing, Kent was playing drums and my friend was singing back up. I go, I don't sing, but I sang because no one else would sing and yeah. Rob would play guitar and we just started doing this and then a year and a half later, we're like, we played a couple songs of the Troubadour, opening it for my friend's band. We went to it's like, oh, it's we just, I mean, it's like pipe dreams. It's like a bucket list shit. And then we recorded an album. We, we just started recording an album. So I had the first experience in a recording studio. I was so nervous. It was like, yeah. as an actor, imagine you going on stage as an actor or whatever. You, oh, it'd be terrifying. You, and that's how I felt. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm not trained. I'm not really a great singer, but these are my songs. I feel so vulnerable. And we recorded like seven or eight songs like in three days. It's amazing. And it, it was crazy. And the experience, and talk about budget, I think the budget was uh, $6,000. Yeah. <laughs> but he worked on, the producer worked on incentives sort of like, hey, you know, hopefully we'll get placement or, yeah. we'll, you know. Totally. So it's, it's, a, it's a different beast. But like, I always think, wow, man, if we had the money, if we had the time, if we had the musical uh, ability. Yeah, yeah. So listen, Andrew, I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't had a lot of musicians on the show. I'm, I'm mostly because I'm friends with people from the 80s. Yeah. Well, Debbie that's... Gibson. 
Uh, Why would you not have Debbie Gibson? I, I'm going to have her on. She's amazing. A, she's amazing. She's going to come on. I'm going to have like uh, a, 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 this is just a, yeah, a lot of 80s, maybe Air Supply. Bitchin'. Bitchin', yeah. Russell Hitchcock's a buddy of mine. And I'm like, you know, I'm kind of saying, so I didn't really know your music, mostly because I don't listen to anything past 97. Okay, okay. Now, I'm, uh, I call it ignorance, because there's a lot of great music, and I do listen to some music. Yeah, yeah. So Rob here, 29-year-old, beautiful Rob, with a, with oh, a child. Yeah, there you He's go. He's a child. I think I knew that, and congratulations. You know? But he was talking about you, and I was like, oh, yeah, well, I don't... And I started listening to your shit. Yeah. Not your shit, your music. It's okay. Your you music's not shit. shit. It's fine. But I really started to like it. And the first thing I thought, well, then I watched the documentary. Oh, boy. Then I fell in yeah. love with you. Thanks. That's why man. I'm sitting so close to you. Yeah, I'm glad we're here together. Dear Jack. And I was like, this story, if, if anything, it's so important, I just think, for everybody to watch. Not just because you had leukemia and you documented it, but... It's it's sort of a love story, not only with music and your and your girlfriend, who's now your wife. Yeah. You're still married, right? Yeah, yeah, Fuck, yeah, that would have yeah, been yeah. brutal. No, that no, yeah, brutal, we're still going bro. strong. And your sister and your mother and your love for your uncle that passed many moons ago and who you always who's an inspiration to you. But it's just like a life story that I just caught me off guard. My assistant looks over at me and goes, are you crying? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> fuck you. Watch this. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one, and I just see you go through these emotions of like, "Hey, I'm on camera, I'm documenting," and then you, there's a there's a, a level of where you just you, you the camera's not there almost. It's like you're just this is life, and I'm I'm not well, and this is real, and I'm not trying to be funny or whatever. It's just, and it just made me. Uh, it was emotional, but it was a journey. It was inspirational. So thank you for that. Yeah, thanks for watching, man. It's yeah, like, I watched it. I watched that whole thing, and it was easy to watch. It was, you know, it was just, uh, it was great. Yeah, the guys who did it were were awesome. It was definitely, it was a painful process to get that that sort of that documentary out into the world because they and it took a few years because it was really hard for me to watch, as you can imagine, you know, and and um. Yeah, you know, I, I I think, but it's it's something that I'm really uh, really proud of. It's been a long time since I've seen it because I, I, there was a point where I was sort of forced to watch it in screenings and and uh, when it premiered and things like that. And um, it just brings you back there, doesn't it? Yeah, well, especially at the time that we released, it was really only maybe three years after you know the whole ordeal took place. And how old were you? I was 22 when I was diagnosed um, and, you know, it says it in the documentary, but for your listeners, like the, the thing for me was like, I had just had this, you know, I had this sort of like weird affair with my video camera, you know, because I, I didn't, I didn't have my girlfriend at the time we were broken up and all these things. And, and, and so my like pal that traveled with me through this uh, sort of period of exploration, which was, you know, a, a breakup at, at 21 or 22. And, and finishing and, your album. And, and, and well, and also like leaving the, something corporate, which had been a really successful band and saying, I'm going to do something else, which, uh, you know, the, the, the hubris of youth leads you to believe that you can do anything, which is how I felt at that point. I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll blow up my band and, and start a new one. And, um, and so the camera had become my sidekick in that journey of, of, of growth and, and developing this new project and, and being out on my own and single for, for the first time since, you know, a high school or whatever. And, and, uh, and yeah, 
at the point that I got sick, it was like that camera was there and that's why it became this documentary. I didn't aim to shoot a documentary. It wasn't like, it just happened to be yeah. like you were, you were, over, this was your I, friend then you I, needed, you know, as a guy who's always been weird about the, the, the sort of contemporary culture of, of sort of always having a camera on yourself and, and, and uh, having to expose every moment down to like how, what, what you cooked for dinner. Uh, I was hysterically sort of early in, uh, in this sort of video blog concept, you know, I like, I was doing that when it wasn't a thing. And that's kind of how this documentary ended up coming to, to be was that I've been filming all these things. Um, but yeah, I, when it came out, I was still, the wound was still pretty fresh and, and seeing it, I, for the first time, I remember I woke up in the middle of the night and thought I was sick again because it had just, oh it God. had just, you know, expanded all of these, uh, the, the synapses that remind you of what you went through, just that you're, and that it, probably could be unhealthy to go back to those thoughts. No. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, there was a lot of stuff that I did in the aftermath of being sick that was super unhealthy. And, and in some ways I think the documentary helped me process the experience, but it was, uh, it was definitely a tough thing to be constantly reminded of what that looked like. Well, it was the, you, you hinted at that. You kind of threw that away where it was like you did some unhealthy things post sickness. Oh, I was just, you know, I, I reckless, super reckless. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean, in the time that, I mean, you can see some of the indicators in the, in the, in the footage of me making that record, but I mean, I was, I was like high all day and I was, you know, I was, I was doing, I was doing everything you, you know, I, I mean, we, yeah, we don't have to get into it. Here, oh, I certainly had my, my hand in just about every cookie jar at the, at the point that I found myself sick, you know, to the point where when I thought, when I found out I was sick, I actually thought it had something to do with. with oh, so with, you're talking reckless, like before you got sick. I was reckless before, but when I, but when I got better. Once you got healthy, you got reckless again. Times two, so, times, so you know. Times do you think 10. that has to do with the psychology of it's going to happen again? I have this in my body. Something's going to happen. I feel like I'm not whole. Is there some kind of psychology to that? Like you, you, you get like so down on yourself that I'm not this healthy young kid anymore. I have this. It's going to come back. Why not? Who cares? Let's just go live life and go extreme. The road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Short of shit. I mean, that's in a nutshell. I think the psychology of survivorship, especially at a young age, is, uh, you know, it's is finally being documented in, in some form, but but is a very precarious sort of minefield of a million different emotions that you're not uh, usually faced with at 22. You know, the the concept of mortality and, and um, you know, the, these these concepts of, of confidence, you know, usually at a, at a young age, especially when you're successful, you, you, you have that confidence to, to, to pursue whatever, you know, whatever ends necessary to continue being successful and the energy and you have the, and you have the energy and, and so to all of a sudden have a lot of those things slip away, um, I think there was an you know an era where partying was really fun and and when I got back on my feet it, it felt fun for a while but then it, it became pretty evident that it was a you know a, a mask uh, to sort of communicate to the world that I was okay and that I was so okay that I I could do with this body what I chose. To. Was there anybody in your family or friends that just said Andrew? We just watched you almost die for hmm. for all this time and we were there for you like don't do this to us kind of thing or don't do this to yourself uh sort of conversations with important people in your life um you know i'd, I'd like to say yes but i think everybody was i think everybody was so glad i was okay yeah and i think every, in, in a weird way what you don't realize about about illness is that uh the people around you 
in a lot of ways get sick with you, you know, and and, and in so many other ways, they don't um, they don't actually have the agency over the body that's ill in the same way. So for me, you know, I knew what my body was going through and I, you know, to some extent, and I, I felt it within my power in a lot of ways to meditate and push my way through that. When you're on the outside, you're watching this happen to somebody that you love. And so, and, and so there's a, a, a fear of, of saying too much or saying too little or, you know, and so I, I think there was a tendency, especially in the, the, the intervening years of my early survivorship where I was also such a time bomb, you know, and, and I, w- I was really fragile and I and and the littlest thing could could freak me out or trip me up or take me off the scent of my creativity or whatever it was that a lot of people really, uh, I, I think, went along with me rather than than tried to get in my way for any number of a million reasons other than my wife, you know, and, and even she, I think it wasn't until, you know, f- about four or five years in where she finally was like, you're a wreck. It's not fun to be with you. And you're going to need to, to start looking inward if we're going to like have a relationship. This? It was probably about, if you figure I got sick in 05, it was probably sometime around 2000, you know, some those conversations started between 09 and 11 and 11 was kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back where she's like, Time for a shrink. And I was like, all right, here we go. Let's See, do this. Well, now we're getting into the show, aren't yeah. we, Rob? Now, this... I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, hopefully, this isn't a comedy show because apparently I'm not going to be very funny. No, this... <laughs> no, that's not what this show's about at all. In fact, this show is sort of evolved into therapy for me, therapy for the guests, therapy for people out there who are like, you know, a lot of times celebrities, musicians, we athletes, they seem sort of intangible and they sort of seem like they just, they just, you just can't connect with them. And like, I think what this show does is, you know, now if you don't look, there's some people who have no problems. I had a great childhood. I had this. I yeah. had this. I didn't have the leukemia. Right. And that that's fine. It's just honesty. And yeah. I think people could re- just respect that. I, and I do. And I think I've become more and more honest where, to the point where my father, he's like, what episode should I listen to? I'm like, none of them. I talk about you, and you probably don't want to hear some of it. Yeah, that's tough. That's that's tough territory. It's tough territory, and uh, so yeah, you, it's not about being funny. I mean, there's a lot of people that aren't funny on the show. <laughs> Rob, for instance, he looks very serious. No, yeah, Rob's I, funny. And I respect that, and I respect that. Inside of you is brought to you by Factor. I love Factor meals, Ryan. Do you know this? Yes. Why do you know this? Because I've seen them in your fridge, and you've offered me some. And you've had them. And I've had them. And you love them. I do. Because I asked you every time. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I spent an enormous amount of money using delivery services for food or going grocery shopping and never eating the food that I buy or too many leftovers. And it's just I waste so much money. And, you know, Factor Meals has really changed my life in a lot of ways because – They have so many different meals, like 35 different meals, more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, and it takes just two minutes. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, it's two minutes to cook this stuff. You always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals, and that's what Factor does. Um, I I, I just can't get over all the things they have, like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, um, their breakfast items, everything, dessert. It's it's perfect for my lifestyle and i think it's perfect for a lot of lifestyles um 
Yeah, you can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Keep kitchen time to a minimum. Factor meals are ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. Warm, sunnier days are calling, Michael. Well, yes, they are. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. It's pretty incredible. Head to factormeals.com slash inside50 and use code inside50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code inside50 at factormeals.com slash inside50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Factor Meals. Inside of You is brought to you by Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. And look, hair thinning impacts a lot of us, myself included. In fact, over half of us will experience hair thinning at some point in our lives. It's not only common, it's normal. Join over 1 million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol helps support hair growth from within by targeting possible key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and even metabolism. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started seeing a little more of your scalp? Has menopause impacted your hormones and your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many possible root causes at play, and Nutrafol helps address them through a multi-targeted whole body approach. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical studies, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplement for six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical study, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific possible root causes. With Nutrafol, getting help building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. You could see results in three to six months. Take the first step to help you see visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter promo code INSIDE. Find out why 4,500 professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, Dot com promo code inside that's nutrifall.com promo code inside take me back to 
that time in your life where, you know, because in the documentary, you, you talked about it briefly, but how important you're like your uncle was and your child. I, I want to know your childhood. Were you sort of like a, a child that just did you have a lot of energy? Did you always get a lot of attention? Did you need that? Or were you one of those kids in the, and goes to the bedroom and just kind of draws and writes and. I mean, I was a weird sort of mix of both, but I think most people would say I was a really outgoing and, you know, an energetic kid. But I was also really awkward in the sense that I was, you know, I was, you know, from the ages of about seven to 15, I was pretty overweight and 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 not much of an athlete in a, in a world where like that's usually what defines kids is what they're into, you know. Competitiveness um, and like uh... – Totally. And I was the youngest of five kids. So I think that's where a lot of my, my sort of like, you know, my parents took me to a, a doctor when I was probably three or four because they thought I was deaf because I spoke so loud, you know, and, 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 and you know, like <laughs> Rob, see, someone it, can relate, you know, and so, so. I wasn't deaf, it turns out. I just was, was in loud. a house full of people that I felt the need to scream over the top of. Um, you know, <laughs> That's how I always feel. Yeah. So, so, oh. so no, I mean, as a kid, um, I think up until the time that I picked up the piano, um, like all kids, you're looking for your thing. Um, and, and certainly, like, the, the passing of my uncle was, was sort of this, this, you know, moment in my life where things shifted and and I found my thing which was writing and 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 writing songs and poetry and things like that which are very you know as a you know as a 9 year old these are not you don't have like the the local 9 year old poets that get together or anything <laughs> they're they're playing basketball so i think there was always a sense for me that i was somewhat on the outside um but not in a way that uh, I don't. I don't think I ever felt alienated. I, I always found a way to make friends, and 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 I was always kind of. I joked. I was always kind of political in a sense. When you're when you're a fat kid, um, you're terrified that somebody's going to call you fat. You know, like that is a that's a real thing. Um, and so I lived with that. But I also was so, I think, insecure and wanted people to like me that, that through my music, I found this vehicle where it's like, well, I can be the fat kid that plays music and maybe people will at least pay attention to me having this, this, uh, uh, you know, sort of talent that they don't have. And, and maybe that's how I fit in, you know? And, and so music was my, my way in the circles of, of, you know, weird clicks throughout, you know, elementary, middle school and high school. And, and, uh, and help me manage, I think, my awkwardness and also talk about it in a way that was therapeutic and, and, and you know, didn't mark me with, I think, the, the scar of what it can be to, you know, to look different and feel different. What were you writing? Kid. Like, what were some of the lyrics as, like, a little boy, like, where you were just uh, – I was listening to Saved by Zero by The Fix in my parents' attic alone over and over. And it wasn't until 20 years later where I realized the song meant saved by zero means when you're saved by zero, you're essentially saved by the ground, by zero. You can't go any lower, can't than, go zero. Any lower than zero. So I'm like, God, <laughs> I was really fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what were you listening to? I mean, for me early, I was, I was playing piano right at the age that like grunge was taking hold, you know? And so I, I was kind of digging into my, my, brothers and sisters records and what they were into, which was like, 
U2 and R.E.M. and the police and and obviously like I had lots of Billy Joel and Elton John and, and Bruce Hornsby because I was a piano player. Um, like those were the those were the records that were big for me. I loved Pearl Jam, though. And, I, I you know, there was a lot of stuff out of that 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 grunge era that clicked with me. What's your favorite uh, Pearl Jam song? I just want to know. Oh gosh, I mean, I, I I wouldn't, I I don't like it. You know, it was like I bought ten. Ten was like the Pearl Jam record that I, you know, it's like it, you know, it was, I'll embarrass myself with with Pearl Jam trivia because I I was about you know ten when I got into Pearl Jam. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, but the records that really connected with me out of that era and the stuff that started informing my writing as I got deeper into being a songwriter were. Um, you know, was like the Counting Crows and like definitely REM was really huge for me. Um, uh, that was like the, the second show I ever saw was REM, you know. Um, I never got to see them. I would love oh, to see God. Them. It was, well, maybe they'll it, come back. It was, it was magic. You know, the, the, I still to this day go back to those records and I'm just like, you know, those were guys that, that, did something different. They always sounded different than everybody yeah. else. And I, I have a lot of respect for bands like that. But yeah, I mean, I was into The Doors and, and Hendrix and a lot of classic rock. My, my my brothers and sisters, you know, toured with The Dead in the summer and with Fish in the summer when they were out, out of college. And so they'd always bring me back, you know, Grateful Dead albums and and, and Fish and stuff like wow. that. So, um, you know, so, you know, those bands, Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker, Simon and Garfunkel, it was always kind of a, a mashup of, of classic rock and then what I think ultimately has become the classic rock of the of, of you know that generation. So you wouldn't see someone like uh, I, Friday night for my birthday. I brought fifty friends to see Kenny Loggins, Christopher Cross, and Michael McDonald. Oh, I totally it? go see that. I've met Kenny before, and he's lovely and and uh, and so sickly talented. And even yeah. though we ain't got oh money, god, yeah, Danny's song. song, man, what a what a what a jam. But uh, but yeah, so I I I mean, I always just leaned towards uh. Anything with a with a with a great melody and a really well written lyric like that has yeah. always been what I look for when I when I find new music and when I when I go to lean on the stuff that that uh, uh you know that that shaped me. It's funny because like right before you came over, I go, you know, I just been listening to his music and like he kind of reminds me of like I don't know like. There's a Billy Joel thing there. Right? <laughs> I don't know like the songwriting. She's like, well, yeah, he played with Billy Joel. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, he opened for Billy Joel. And I'm like. And then you just talked about Billy Joel. I'm like, what? But it's present. It's there. It's the the way. It's the songwriting. It's the it's the way you sing it too. It's like there's obviously that influence there. Totally. I mean, he was, for all uh, intents and purposes, my bible as a as a songwriter when I was a, when I was just starting. Um, I think, like anything, you know, your influences. Uh, you develop them over time and you find new music that you're fired up on. And, and, and I certainly do, but there's a thing that happens with the first handful of bands that really move you, especially when you're in these sort of critical formative moments of your craft that will be there forever. You know, for me, like that's, you know, you know, Pet Sounds was like massive Boys, for yeah. me. Oh, you yeah. know, Ben Folds Five first couple records were just like they they were game changing. Oh god! Day after what? A, I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Mean, I think those those things really uh, those things really inform your perspective for your whole life. And and certainly going out and playing with Billy Joel last year and doing a, a handful of shows with him, it, even in this newest record, it reignited a thing for me where it was like. There's something magical about, I think, what he did as a songwriter that not a lot of people have successfully navigated, which Told is stories. Well, telling stories, 
also sonically telling stories. You know, a lot of those records were produced by Phil Ramone. Um, but even into into the the Korchmar records, like with, with a with a like River of Dreams or whatever, song to song, when you listen to a Billy Joel record, while there may be this thread of 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 time, there are all of these different scenes within an album of his that I think are just like it's it's so rare for an artist's voice to be able to inhabit so many spaces successfully um and and you know there are people who will say well like that was you know that wasn't cool or that was the, you know whatever but but he did it so well i mean yeah. you know doing a song that sounds like motown to a song that sounds like Zanzibar. disco you know yeah she's always a woman yeah it. steely dan like down to yeah. like down to early beatles like it, it, there's something uh, magical, I think that Billy Joel did in channeling his influences that always really impressed me, and then sort of uh, re-impressed me. Not that that's a word, but uh, made a second. I, I make up a lot yeah, of words, but bro. made made a, a second really strong impression on me watching him perform his catalog in, in you know in these baseball stadiums. Did you play those songs at all? Can you play Billy Joel songs? I you know you don't seem like a cover person to me. I'm just not. It's so funny. Because yeah, I just it, I, I don't get like you're like oh yeah, you guys want to hear. Uh... Allentown? Not only that, but like that. I, I, even when people are like, "Can you play this song of yours?" Like, if uh, chances are no, if I haven't been performing it in the past six months, like I, you know, I. Why did you even set this piano up here, uh, Rob? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I actually saw it, and I remember Rob saying that maybe there would be a keyboard here, and I'm just like, I don't, don't feel pressure. I don't even know what like, to play. So, you don't play covers at all. I mean, I, I, I do. could you play a, a by ear because I know you play by ear. That's kind of your thing, right? You could just. Well, I, I mean, I know how to read, but I mean, poorly. But I, I mean, I, I, I know the shorthand of. of could you play New York State of Mind just off the, in your head? No, probably no. couldn't do that. No, I mean, I could sit down and learn it, but I'm not going to sit down here and play it and all of a sudden magically perform New York State. Right. Of there's Mind some people you. that do that, especially because there's like six verses in that song. But is there? I mean, probably. I mean, most of his songs do, which is the best part. So you were you were overweight as a child. <laughs> Back you, to that, you yes. almost died when your mother gave birth. All right, right. Well, yeah, I. I you I weren't mean, I breathing. Think, yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of things that that my, you know, all these things become lore, and and, and so yes, so the, the story goes that that I was born really unwell, um, but it was also I think one of those things where I was going to be fine, but there was a chance of, you know, having one of two strep infections or something when I was born. And if it was the other one, I would have died. But because it was not that one, I was intended to live. Right. So, but as my parents will tell the story, like you almost died. I don't know if I almost died. I think maybe I, maybe there was a fear that I almost could have died. You were and of deaf. course, And of course, as a parent holding your kid, knowing that there's a, you know, a 50, 50 shot oh, that you have yeah. this infection. Yeah. In their minds. Yeah. I was, I was, you Traumatizing. know, I, yeah, of course. And I, I, I can understand that as a parent, but I, I, you know, I try and demystify some of these things because I, I don't know for sure that that's the case. Right. Yeah. But it's cool to, to kind of make. Yeah. I, you know, you, to, it's storytelling. Look, there's there's no question there were a handful of occasions where I was n very close to not living in my early years. And I'm, I'm glad that those turned out the other way. <laughs> yeah. Or went deaf. Yeah. No, he's just loud. Just loud. Uh, so, you know, when your uncle passed away, we don't have to talk about this that much, right. but he was a great musician, right? No, he was actually, my uncle was a remarkable man and a very complicated person, but he was 
an entrepreneur from the time he was in high school. He was he started a magazine that he he edited out of you know my grandparents' garage um, that became uh, at the time it was called Industry Magazine, I believe, and it became this like very powerful uh, uh, magazine within some industry. Like I, I again, I don't know that this is one hundred percent true, but. He, I, I believe, had a, a hand in the waterbed craze of like the 70s Ooh. and the 80s, like where he published, I think, the magazine where these things were sold. And 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 that was like a, you know, that was how he made, I think, his his first big. Did you ever have sum- sex in a waterbed? I'm not going to answer that question with yes. Because it wasn't your wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. my In high school, my best friend had a waterbed. What was his name? Ted? His name was Adam. Adam. And, and I would be lying to say, I, I never had sex in a waterbed, but I, I, you know, it was a place that, that, that when you had a girlfriend, uh, you would, you know, us, you know, our friends maybe <laughs> took some, some strange joy in seeing what the waterbed was like when, you know, h- hanging out with your, with your lady. It was, it was fun. I only did it once, Rob. You weren't around with waterbeds. I found it to be very uncomfortable. What's going on here? There's nothing to press against. You <laughs> know, not, I mean, you have no leverage. There's no there's leverage no, point. Yeah, it's just, it's, you know what it is. It's the lamest sex ever. But if you want to do some slow, curvy, wavy lovemaking, get a waterbed. I mean, look, yeah, it, it was more of a, a you know more of a, a embellished makeout session, I would say. But it was it was. <laughs> We get it. We get it. You didn't have sex. If anybody's listening, uh, but but yeah, I mean, Adam. I think he. I think he knows that we we used his his waterbed in this way. I can't imagine he thought we were doing anything else in his room. Can you yeah. make sure we tweet that, Adam? Just so you know, there was some making out on the waterbed. Yeah, those stains. <laughs> well, Jesus, now you're getting dirty. Oh my God, that waterbed! I, I'll tell you though, because we used to just—that was where we would, you know, in high school, you, you'd get like a twelve-pack of, like Bush, uh, you light. Know, Bush Light or Bush Keystone light. Ice oh, or whatever yeah. horrible fuck beer yeah. you could get that was ratcheted up in alcohol percentage. And under Adam's waterbed, there was this thing we called the coffin because there there was, as you know, the structure of a waterbed needs to have space underneath. Uh, to allow for the motion of right. the, the, you know, so this one was set really high. And so there was this big empty space under the entirety of his waterbed. So we would drink all of these beers, right? Right. And then we put them in a trash bag because we didn't want to walk past his, his parents. And just with put them under the bed. So f- for like all of high school, we were just shoving Empty beer cans well, and trash bags like under old... his bed. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not, but not any worse than a 16 year old boy does. You know what I mean? Right. And I think it was at some point his mother, after he had like even moved out of the house, his mother like was cleaning the room and just found just garbage bags full of like the worst <laughs> beer that you could find. And a couple of Andrew McMahon's condoms. No, just no. kidding. I know you didn't an, have sex. An embellished makeout <laughs> session. Embellished uh, makeout. I don't know where we're going with this. We were talking about, my, we were talking about, I know we were talking about my uncle. So yeah, yeah. yeah waterbeds. Yeah. Beautiful. That was uh, a conversation about it. So his kind of claim to fame was that at, at a point when he was really young and, and, and fairly unseasoned as a, as a entrepreneur, uh, Jane Fonda put out this workout book that was like this popular become, became this popular book for aerobics before, like before aerobics was this huge trend. And my uncle pitched her on this idea. Well, I want to shoot a video of you doing your workout and and 
you know, there are these new things called VCRs. And I really think that people are going to buy these tapes and they'll work out in their living room with their VCRs. You know, that was my uncle's Your concept. uncle thought that that was his concept. And he went to Jane and, and she was impressed by his ingenuity and, and, and this idea. And so they made the Jane Fonda workout and, and it became phenomenon empire a phenomenon like nothing else it was one of the things so he that, became really rich oh insanely rich you know and and as a young kid you know as a you're four five six years old and i'm you know i'm with my dad and my cousin who's the same age and we're going on a helicopter to the playboy mansion so my uncle can do a deal with hugh hefner to do playboy video and and wait you, you went to the playboy mansion not only did i go to the playboy mansion at the age of like five, but they wouldn't let us in. So we had like one of Hugh Hefner's handlers and my dad kind of like hanging out with me and my cousin over by the pool. It was a quiet day. We, there was no action as far as I recall or was, was told, but my cousin and I being five peed in the pool, stood outside of the Playboy Mansion pool and peed into the pool. And this is like the legend of our trip to the Playboy Mansion on my and uncle's no helicopter. I mean, I, I, I believe we were, we were allowed to finish. I'm sure much worse has taken place. I in think the, the in security the pool. guard probably goes, <laughs> those kids I, think that's bad. I was really fortunate to get to visit the mansion, you know, years later and took my wife to the mansion to a party, you know, where was we actually, the, uh, what was the party? You remember the, yeah, the I don't remember. It was a sponsor party, but Hef was there. There was like a topless DJ. I didn't meet Hef. Um, he was, it was, it was really like, it was towards his last couple of years. Um, and I was with a friend who was a photographer and he shot some amazing pictures of Hef kind of in this receiving line that were so really beautiful. It kind of just showed this frail dude and still in his velvet robe right. and just kind of the, the end of this, this weird era of American culture. But, um, but yeah, so that, that was my uncle though. He did these incredible things and, um, where did he live? He lived in Newport beach. He, he, uh, he, he had, he moved around and were you there a lot? Did you always experience like the the ocean and his the boats? Did he have was he just like yeah he had a huge yacht called the Oz. He, yeah he was he was he was really for our family and I think the reason that it was such a, a sort of seminal moment for me was because our family um, you know we we lived on the East Coast in the Midwest mostly um, you know my dad's job he was in retail so we moved every couple of years but we generally were on the you know you know to the to the to the east side of the of the Mississippi and and but we spent all our summers in California staying at my grandparents' house and and you know and playing with my cousins at at their house and and so my uncle was you know he was an icon in his own right but to our family he was also this this really dynamic uh uh he's a hysterical funny guy and 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 so smart but also you know he there were a lot of things about um about the way that he maintained his empire and, you know, let a lot of people into his sphere that, that, that really kind of were his undoing ultimately. And, and, you know, when he passed from, from cancer, he had, he had been through this really horrible thing where, you know, he was a Orange County Democrat, which was a really, especially at that time in the Reagan era was a really, you know, he it put a, I mean, he had a target on his back for for a, a huge chunk of his his sort of rise to the top, and he was he was a figure that was 
polarizing politically for a lot of people and, and ended up sort of being embroiled in this ridiculous campaign finance scandal and was strung up on the national news. And, and it was a real trauma for, for our family and, and sort of in, in the midst of him trying to make his comeback, he got sick. And so I think, you know, that whole arc of his career and his success and the dynamic, you know, this, the dynamic of his personality, um, losing him at that time was, was really, uh, you made a huge impact, not just on me, but everybody in our family. You know, I I don't think most people, he was just loved. He was was loved. And and when he was gone, it, it blew a hole in our family that was really, uh, you know, very, it was, it was profound for sure. Yeah. And, um, and in a sense, I think there was, uh, it was the first time I'd felt grief like that. And I, I cried for days when he And you passed. were 11? I was nine. Nine. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was, maybe I, I might've been eight. It might've been right before I turned nine actually. And, and, but it did something to me like when he passed and I, and we were close, but close. And he was my uncle who I saw in the summers, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like he raised, like, you know, he raised me like a second parent or anything, but I idolized him in a way and losing him, I think, uh, it, it, put me into this place where I had to fill that with something. And music was what was the thing that I I filled that gap with. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because, you know, again, it's my uncle, it's my dad's brother. He lives in Chicago. I see him twice, once a year, twice a year, but I've always had this connection to him and my aunt. I I just, the way they listened to me, they, I just felt like they were too, there's few people in my life that I actually felt as a kid really listened to me and were interested in me, which is important in your developmental stages. And I didn't really feel like my parents were there. They weren't there. I mean, maybe they tried, but they just weren't present. I didn't feel like they were interested in me. And my uncle just wanted, and even to this day, I'll talk to him about relationships. He's a psychologist and we'll stay up till two or three in the morning and we'll talk about things and I'll go, have you ever done this? Maybe you should see a therapist. And we talk, but very candidly, openly. And, uh, so I can relate to you that if something happened to my uncle, I'd be devastated. And this was someone you looked up to and he was, uh, exciting and, and different and there was a lot of love. So when that happened, you, you say you found music. Yeah. Well, I think too, with him, because I was always more into the arts and I wasn't this athletic kid, you know, he was proof that you could, you know, with a great idea, make it in the, in the entertainment industry, you know? And, and so it's no surprise that I found music and, and, and my first songs were about him. You know, my first songs were about the grieving process. And what was your favorite song then that you remember about him that you just, that always comes to mind? Yeah. The first song I ever wrote was, called believe you know and it was it was uh you know it was it was a story about some version of faith i mean it wasn't i was raised religious but i never had that 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 bone really but i but i but i I think it was about the the mysticism of of you know what where somebody goes when they pass and and what they leave behind and what part of that is left with you and and you know but then from there a lot of the songs that i wrote were really about moving because i moved so much and i was always reintegrating into a new um you know culture within our country you know I, I moved from new massachusetts to new jersey to ohio to california to illinois or you know it was like so i was always like having to embed in new spaces and so a lot of my writing and even to this day like that thread is still very present ohio yeah i mean that and that you know that thread is so present uh, in in my music now that like motion and 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 
culture and where you fit into that culture and 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 how travel informs uh, uh, perspective. I mean, those are the things that I think became bedrock of of um, my writing, and and that's what I, so much of my music was about was coping with with seeing you know being in a new town and being the new kid and being uncomfortable in my body and how to and how to you know uh, you know make my way through um whatever the machinations of 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 becoming a part of a, a new school and a new new town and once you just it sounds like you it just took off like i you loved it so much you were probably in your room writing all the time new songs and you started performing in high school yeah i wrote um I just wrote every day, all day long. As soon as I get home from school, I would just write. And yeah, I, you know, there was a, there was a sort of a tricky portion of my life where I stopped writing for a year, which, you know, when you're a kid and you've done something from ages nine to 12 every day, all day long. And then, you know, when we moved to California, um, I stopped for, for a year and, and got a little, depressed truthfully you know and 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 actually started acting you know was i think that was i'd always kind of did i'd always done theater as a kid because it was another way to perform as a songwriter and you're 10 you don't have a lot of outlets for performance so i actually got really into theater and and was going to go to idlewild performing arts school like that was going to be my thing um and my dad wouldn't let me uh, he thought it was ridiculous for a kid to leave his parents like, you know, for, you know, for a, a year of school and not live with them and all that stuff. And 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 it was funny when I got into when I moved to Dana Point with my family and, and started high school there. All of a sudden I started in the theater program there was a little put off by it. But I realized like, I oh, yeah, you have this skill. You can play piano and sing. And. And so I would be in the theater room and I'd sit down at the piano and I'd start playing these songs. It's amazing how people just love it when someone can play yeah. piano and sing. It's just like that energy that. Well, like this is the things that we do. I mean, we, we're performance artists and, and so we're inherently insecure. And so when you have a talent and you're in high school and right. you're fat and, you know, and you're, you're trying desperately to make friends. Like for me, I was like, man, I'm just going to wander over to that piano and see if anybody turns their head. I'm not going to get laid with my weight. I'm going to get laid with a song. <laughs> yeah. Soul. You know, you're just, I was just such an uncomfortable kid. And, and, and all of a sudden I found a, I found a, a tribe in there, you know, and, and, and it emboldened me to to keep writing. And that was really what got me into it in like, this is going to be what I do. And and performance isn't going to be through theater because the drama teacher was was really ruthless and, and very much had like a strange vendetta against me and a handful of my friends in that in that camp. And 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 so I was like, I'm going to do it through music, you know, and and. So I started just writing and writing and then, you know, high school clicked and I made good friends and I, you know, grew up a little bit and, and got comfortable in my skin and, and found a girlfriend. And all of a sudden it was like I started writing these songs that felt more like the songs you would hear in the world. Right. Not exactly like them because it was, you know, it was still a very different era of music. But but uh, but yeah, that led to starting my first high school band and and the second version of that band became the thing that that, that was signed and got, corporate yeah i mean how hard is it to you think of the word insatiable you know like uh for me it's perfectionism and you know trying to get out of that and always having to be the you know there's there's really no such thing as being perfect you can't be perfect no. so 
do you ever suffer with that or did you suffer or you learn to work with it and, and sort of accept like, hey, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm always not going to like something about myself, about the music, about and how you get through that and how you let things go. Are you was there a time when you it was hard to let things go and you just almost a little manic about it, a little crazy about it, like uh, too, too much. And you, you learn to let that go. I mean, yeah, I, I think. I could be a really insufferable person in a recording studio at times. You know, I, my bandmates in something corporate, all of them amazing guys. And lo- I'm so fortunate that we've maintained such good friendships over the years and still keep in touch and see each other. Um, and I think just being successful at a very young age is tricky for anybody, you know, but I grew up a perfectionist. I grew up very, uh, you know, learning to be very hard on the people around you with the intent of, of executing your vision, you know, and, and I always had a very strong vision and still do to this day. Um, and I think what I've learned over time is a combination of what to let go, how, how to try and be a perfectionist, but, but, but also not let your, your sense of perfectionism get in the way of letting good work out before you kill it too, you know, and, and, but I could be very difficult. Yeah. And, and, and historically, you know, not be the easiest person to work with. You know, I think there are a lot of people have fun working with me, but at, at my worst, I can be really tough. I could be really tough. Yeah. Well, how do you let that go of that sort of, uh, I mean, you just admitted it in a way, like I'm hard to work with. I can be hard to work with. I can be such a perfectionist. So in my head and have you ruined relationships with that? Have you, um, ever apologized years later and said, Hey, listen, I was, have you, have you done anything like like that? I've done a lot of apologizing in my life for sure. I I believe, I really believe in the act of apologizing. I, I, I think that, you know, especially when you're, when you're a really strong personality, which I am, and I'm, I feel like every day and especially through getting into therapy and, and, and trying to understand myself better so I can find a way to communicate with the world better and communicate my vision better and, and, and respect that not everybody is inside my head, even if they're working on my project or working in the room with me. Um, I think it's been a huge part of the process of the last six or seven years for me. Um, I think it would have got there faster if I hadn't gotten sick. You know, I don't blame my illness for that, but I think, uh, you know, when I started Jack's Mannequin, that was such a painless process. By the end of something corporate, making records and doing tours and making decisions was a very painful process. I felt like my vision had been hijacked and I felt and – and it wasn't, but I felt attacked. And we got so bad at interacting with each other that we just acted sometimes spitefully and sometimes not in the best interest of the group or one another. Absolutely. I mean we weren't ever the type to just really brawl all out. We were We were – much more political and, you know, talk to this guy and see if you can get him to move. And, and, and that got so exhausting for me. And I realized that's, this isn't a, like a healthy environment for me to work in. So I started Jack's mannequin and it was so painless and it was flying. And it was like, Oh, I realized like me and a producer in a room can do great work together and we can find a vision and we can collaborate on a vision. It was so collaborative and so painless. Um, the aftermath of that, getting back into making records, I sort of fell right back into like, well, maybe I'll bring the band into the studio. And then that those records got very difficult and um, not to take anything away from anybody else. But I found really over time, the way that I work best with people is one-on-one. You know, I, I, 
I love sharing and collaborating with people's visions, but I do find it gets very tricky when you put a lot of heads in a room. Yeah. Sometimes that you you run into a space, especially me, who's a people pleaser. I yeah, run the too. gamut of, of of saying yes. Let's go with that idea. Yeah, let's and, try that. Or, but you're wasting time. Or it's a good idea, but it just doesn't lock with what you see for yeah. the for the project or the song or the the that that thing that you that intangible of your your end game, and. Um, so I think a lot of the work that I've done over the last several years is, is one, you know, finding out a way that I work that I feel inspired in a way that gets me to good work and then surrounding myself with people who I really trust and who I want to hear what they have to say. Um, and, then, and also want to fill your vision, like want to make that of, come to fruition. Like that's the goal. Or who have a, or who have a vision f- for what they see for me and help to build out my vision for myself. And so it really like I've become super collaborative in this over the, the course of these last few records and this this wing of my career. But in a way that I feel like I still have agency over what's important to me. Um, but I'm also getting to to sort of import all these great ideas from great thinkers that are helping me to achieve that. Um, but, but it, at times, you know, especially if you're my day to day manager and you could have him here and he'll tell you, you know, there are times where I do get frustrated and when you're the first, the first in line uh, and the messenger of, of what can sometimes be bad news. Um, you know, I, I can still that, 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 that guy can come out. I try to manage a lot better, but I also try really hard when it happens and when, when sort of the, I see red and, and, and let it fly. Are you, uh, are you a yeller? Can you yell? Can be, you know? Yeah. And I, I, are you I, an F bomber? I swear. Yeah. Profusely? I'm a, yeah. I'm a whore. I have a terrible mouth. Yeah. Again, I'm better than I've been. And I, and the big part of it, I think beyond just the, the way I talk to people now, especially when I'm working, I, I really do try when I, when I find myself, saying something that I shouldn't have said or acting in a way that's just not, uh, that just doesn't, it doesn't comport with how you should be in the world. If you want to get love back, you know, that I do really try, especially these days to just take a breath and, and then make the call to say, okay, right. I didn't handle myself well there. How do we get to the the next place, how can we fix this? Or what, what can I do to sort of like, you know, get us on the right page? I think that's just maturity. That's what, you know, I've done. I've certainly written emails where I'm like, oh, you know, I just don't think this is good. And I'll, you know, and then I write an email and I go, oh, that's not bad. They're men. They could, they could handle it. And then all of a sudden I feel like the, the energy is off and they're like upset and like somebody else will read it and go, well, maybe you could have just prefaced it with something positive. I'm like, well, why do I need a sugar coat? Well, sometimes you just need to say, hey, here's what's good, and here's what I think we could use some work. It's all about yeah. rephrasing, and I'm like, eh, but I've learned to just – it's easier to sort of just say, hey, Andrew, you're very handsome. You have great hair. I'm so glad to hear you say that. But I really would fucking hate if you don't play a song today. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, do you I, – I, I mean, do you, do you – I think there's a line, and I, you can you can tell me where, what, you, what you think about this – I also think there is a point where it's like what we do is is it's not I mean there are a lot harder jobs but at the end of the day when you have to send out a representation of yourself sometimes you have to be like no that sucks somebody sends me artwork yeah. if somebody sends me artwork that sucks now if it's the artist I'm not going to be like that sucks right but I will on another chain say 
this can't this is not what we're doing or this is or, not or, for me or this person doesn't get what we're doing Let, right. let's not go any further and that's the other thing i've learned is like when something isn't working just stop it sometimes now. it's really best to say you know what i'm not going to i'm not going to die on this hill i'm going to walk away and do something else yeah hey this is in the right direction but i really appreciate your work yeah but your art sucks. I honestly, I didn't know. I was like, okay, what are we going to talk about? There's so much to talk about, but I do want to hint, uh, talk about w- uh, one other thing. Yeah, talk to me. Your wife. Yeah. What's her name? Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. There was a couple things. Kelly, you and Kelly, are like, sort of at the height of like you're sort of like this artist, and you're growing, and you got this record label, and all these things, and you guys break it off. Yeah. Right. That's what happened. In in a few words, you broke it off. I did. And what was your reasoning? You know, it was it was. Uh, First of at, all, you're 22. Well, I was 22, and the, and the, for me at the time, what you have to understand is our break was wrapped up in so much other stuff, and and a lot of it was wrapped up in this thing. Like I had been on the road for the better part of three years, make and when I wasn't on the road, I was making records, and we were together through that whole thing, and before and after as well, but. I had just lived with so many people on top of me. And by the time something corporate had, had wrapped up, I was just, I was just fried. I was tired of being around people, (laughs) you know, not like I I just didn't, uh, the intimacy I had spent so much of the intervening years between high school and and my early, earliest of twenties, like just in rooms full of people with opinions about who I was and, and what I was and, and, uh, what I was doing. And I just felt in that moment that I was like, I just need to not be attached to anything, you know? And, and, and that's sort of what you told her. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was, it was, it was horrible because it, it really wasn't that I, I wasn't in love with her, or that I didn't see us having a future. It was just that I, w- I was so confused about who I was, you know, like those last years of being in, in, the band, it, it was the, the kind of thing where you would say, like, this is how it should be. And, and in my mind, this is the way things should be. And then I have all these other people saying, no, we need to go this way or that way. This is the right way. This is the right way. And it, Kelly wasn't one of those people. But but I think just after in the midst of all that, you know, you're growing, you go from a teenager to now you're a young man. And 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 I, I had made some money and now I had a house and bills and all, all these things. And it was like, and I felt so confused about who I was and what I really wanted to do because the thing that I knew I wanted to do was music and I was doing it, but I wasn't fulfilled all of a sudden. And and so it was really more an act of just like needing to take control of my my life and my my body and my mind and just like explore. And and I had to do that without any any attachments. I mean, you can you know, my parents, I don't even know if it's really covered in the documentary, but like I had really, I sort of, not out of spite or anything, but I had really kind of detached from my family. Yeah, I, I, you don't talk about that. I, I had, I had, I had really gone on this solo mission, and the only people around me were like, I had two high school best friends who lived in the house where where that I had had bought with my first publishing check, and and um, and I spent that year on this kind of like where I was where I would travel on my own and I would write songs in my room and I'd wake up when I want to. And I didn't, and I, you know, and I didn't talk to people, you know, people who, who were in charge of my business every day. And I just like, I just did whatever the fuck I wanted for a little while. And I needed to, yeah. you know, I, I mean, just, at 22 I, years old. I, I don't know what I'm doing at 46. Yeah. 
So you it's do like not a, look 46, so something's well, working for well, you. Yeah. yeah, it's the HM company. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, they're just, he's a good buddy in there. It's but, really but good you stuff. know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. you just need that, you need to go on that journey. And, um, and it was, it was, it was really, it was really hard. I mean, the hardest part of that was being separated from her because it was like, I had this, we had this magnetic thing that we were, we felt this need to be together. But I also felt like if I was going to go on this, this sort of adventure that I had to go it alone. And I had to do that without doing all the bullshit that people do when they're broken up, which is they talk to each other and fight all the time. And I was like, in my mind, I was going to get back together with her. I, it was always in my head that this was, that this was just a side road around a, a, the, a, a better end, but that I needed this thing to take place for us to, to be together. And, and, and so it was hard, but we made this clean break and it was brutal on her and it was brutal on me, but obviously you, I can't own any of that because I was the one who did it. That should be um, a title of your next album. What's that? Side road back to a better end to a better end. Yeah. I Side mean, road back to a better end. Luckily I feel like I'm on, I'm on the right road at the moment, but, <laughs> but, uh, that's my, that album, could be, though. that might be the, that might be the documentary of my life, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And, and, you know, when we did, we found our way back to each other. Luckily we did so, and we're doing so before I found out I was sick, but, but the, the, the real sort of hard work of getting back together largely happened in that hospital room, you know? And it, what was it? What, I mean, take me back there for a second. Cause you talk about it in a documentary, but I need to know, like you're exhausted. You just mixed the album ironically. Yeah. Um, what was the album? Everything in transit, everything in transit. And that's the same day you found out you had leukemia. Or is that the same day you went to the hospital? So I was in the mix suite all day. Uh, not the mix suite. I was in the, the mastering suite all day with a guy named Ted Jensen, putting the album in sequence and like, you know, there a lot of transitions to the record and just sort of like putting the album together. It was mixed. Now it was mastered. It was like the day, final day I was on the road with the band. We were we'd just done a huge show in New York that sold out. And, and it, the building itself is in, in the Chelsea Piers. Uh, and it's all concrete. And you couldn't get cell reception in there, uh, in his in his office. So I never I never saw the call. And I had this this Polaroid camera that I had always been travel or had been traveling with. I would always go out and take pictures. And I was like, listen to the record finished. Was like, wow, it's done. Walk downstairs, go take Polaroids or whatever sort of inspires me to kind of to 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 you know to mark time for this this and then this the message thing. came out. And then I look at my phone and I was like, I can't even tell you how many messages. It was just like message after message after message, all from the same doctor's office. You need to call us. Andrew, you need to call us right now. Finally, the message is just like, wherever you are, whenever you get this, go someplace where there aren't a lot of people and call us back. You're not well and you can't be outside. You can't be anywhere. You need to be in a hospital. And so I call and he's just like- well, By the way, just take me there for a second because- Right there, my, my 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 heart starts to beat. Oh yeah, there's there's this numb feeling you get, isn't there? It was the realization of a fear that had been brewing over whatever had been going on in my body. For like the something's last few going days. wrong. I'm tired mm. all the time. I can't explain that fatigue briefly. Just like I had to sleep. I just I it was it, my voice kept coming and going. Uh, sometimes it would show up for a show. Other times I'd finish a show and I couldn't speak. You know, I I I was having trouble breathing. Um, and a lot of those things I was just, you know, again, I was, I was partying so much that it was like, I would just drink my way through it or just smoke a ton of weed or whatever that I, I, I'm getting anxiety from it. You know, I was, I was not really an anxious, it wasn't really anxious. I was, I was confused, you know, and I assumed 
I think in my heart of hearts, I assumed it was, it was, was because of this, uh, this schedule of like the touring that I was doing and the lifestyle that I had been pursuing at the time was like, you know, it, there were any number of reasons why it could have been right, not right. well, you know? And, and so when I, I, I mean, I just, I immediately ran back to the suite uh, where we were mastering. I put myself in the, the, the artist sort of area in the, in the mastering suite and called the doctor. And he was just like, look, a breeze could blow right now and you could get a cold that would kill you. You're, you have no immune system. He had literally, he's a brilliant man, uh, Dr. Scott Kessler, um, voice doctor in the city. He's the one who had taken my blood because I was bothering him. My voice was bothering me. And he, he had the wherewithal to go like, you don't look well, I'm going to take your blood. It wasn't a normal doctor's visit. I was just trying to get steroids to get my voice to work for a New York show. And, and, uh, and he had already called – he looked at my pathology. He called the best doctor in his mind in the city that could deal with it and it was a hematology oncologist. And and he said, you need to go right to New York Presbyterian and and this doctor is waiting for you. Now, mind you, it's the Friday before Memorial Day weekend. So everybody's about to leave for the weekend and he's like he's, – he's going away. But he's going to stay there until you get there because he needs to see you. And he, I got in there and they were just like on your stomach, bone marrow biopsy, like just all of a sudden it was just like, like I was you, just, you just went through a hell storm. Immediately. Shit. Immediately. Are you just oh, like, oh, you got to be so overwhelmed at this moment. Like what, what the fuck? Is this real? Does it seem sort of like they've got me wrong here? They've got the wrong blood work. They'll take it again. I'll be okay. It's not what they think it is. Was there any that doubt or you knew something was? No, wrong? I knew something was really wrong. I, I, I would, you know, there was a moment when, you know, when he sat down and he said, you, you know, and it was within the first hour or so that I was there, said, you have in my mind, one of two things, it's either aplastic uh, anemia or leukemia. Um, we're not going to know which it is until this pathology comes back. And it's going to take a while for it to come back. Cause my bone the, from the bone marrow biopsy was my bone was so dry that you could barely aspirate anything out of it because it just wasn't making any good marrow. Um, and, and yeah, and he, he said, uh, you know, he said those two things and I, I just, I just kind of sat there and, and, you know, I called, I called one of my oldest friends first. I didn't call Kelly first. Cause I was just like, there's no, there, th this is not a call that I can make at this very moment. And I called and I just remember just breaking down and us breaking down together. And I'm like, I, I might have, I might have cancer, you know? And, uh, and yeah. And, and, but I will tell you that there was that or surrounding that whole point, And it was probably just shock. But I think I was running – I was so hypermanic for a year. You know, I was so – I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. All I was doing was creating. It was invigorating and it was so – it was so wonderful. But it was also so dangerous. You know what I mean? And 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 I was living so fast and I had money. And, you know, so I could get – I could, I could, I could get as much of whatever I wanted and I could, I could go out as late as I wanted and I had cash to burn and I had no one to hold me to account and I was making really good music. And so, and now I was on the road and, and it was like, and now we're on the road, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's, it's moving even faster. And I felt, I had felt for some time that I was kind of careening towards something, you know? And so when I found out I was sick in some very strange way, there was a piece I had with it because I knew I was careening towards something. And I, and I, I, 
I think I felt better about it being cancer than being like rehab or or whatever other shit was going to go along with that, you know, and 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 in a way it was like it was you have to stop. You have no choice. You're moving so fast. Your inertia is so intense that something has just said no and it's your body. And I was ready to listen, you know, and I did. And I was, and I, so I, I was able to approach it very peacefully because I felt like it was, it was a piece that I hadn't had. Isn't it amazing when you talk about all like money and fame and this and that and life and nothing matters if you don't have health. I mean, it's so simple, but health is wealth. It's just, it, it is a, uh, it is a commodity that we take it for granted, you know, and, and, there are a lot of things I do that probably aren't so healthy, but I live a lot healthier lifestyle now, you know, and, and, um, but yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing when for every given reason you should, you know, you're young and you should be okay. And then you're not, um, you really are forced to forget everything that you're doing. And I was fortunate, you know, I was able to do that. A lot of people in this crazy weird polarizing world we live in right now you know where we politicize health and how we receive healthcare and things like that i always just laugh like you know all of us are going to be faced with one of these catastrophes at some point in our life some of us by virtue of having money and good health insurance will survive when others don't and i think that is so wild and so it's tragic and it's and it's i think it's a real crime of what's taken place in our politics and what's taken place in 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 the form of a you know capitalism that we've turned the care of our our beings you know into into a, a commodity for people because it really is we need to see good doctors. Well, you would've, you would've, I wouldn't be you wouldn't here. Be, yeah, you I, would, be I had two forms of insurance and I had access and, and intelligent people guiding the way. What I had, there is no question that in the hands of other institutions and, uh, le- and, and it, it, there is just not even a question. And I find that, I find that really, uh, uh, it gives me pause when people fight about, you know, about, taking care of, of, uh, this disastrous health economy that we have, you know, that we haven't stepped up and said, as a people, we need to do it better. You know, whatever that is, we need to come together and do it better for sure. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Kelly, she's been sort of the anchor. She's still like, you guys have been together. How long? She's amazing. Yeah. We've been, I think this summer we will have, we would have started dating 17 years ago. 17, you have a child now? We have a little girl. She's four and a half, Cecilia. Yeah. And as a 22 year old guy going to the hospital, broken up with a girlfriend, isolating himself, needed some time on his own, doing whatever to survive that and look, look back and see where you are now doing a new album. Yeah. You're, you're healthy. Knock on wood. Yeah. Or knock on wood. Uh, everything, every day is a blessing. Yeah. What's crazy about, that time compared to this time is that this album that I'm that I'm finishing is the first album since that time where I'm back in that town that I lived when when this whole thing happened and I'm 
writing music the same way I was back then and and in this like in this sense of flow and by myself in a garage with my piano and 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 walking it up to Santa Monica and doing it with this with a producer and fin- I mean it's like there's this really bizarre parallel between then and now but the beauty of it is that I that she's there you know and I would not be alive were it not for my wife. I mean, plain and simple that at the most critical times in my life, when I needed to be, when I needed to go crazy, she, she incubated the worst of my freakouts, you know? And then when it needed to be pulled back to ground, she had the wisdom to say, this is the moment I need to actually step in. You know, she's not a nagging person. She's not, you know, we, we, we operate, with so much deference to each other as individuals that when she speaks up and says, okay, now we need a course correction. I'm like, oh my God, yes, I'm not going to fuck this up, you know? (laughs) And, and to have somebody in your life that knows you well enough that, that, that gives you the latitude to, to, to be every sort of strange uh, uh, expression of your inner mind and lets you wander around the house like a crazy person uh, trying to f- put these puzzles together, you know, and, and, and manages the, 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 to, to, to stay grounded herself. And is so grounding for me. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's such a gift. And it's she's crazy. seen you in the darkest. Oh. There's nobody that's seen you that dark, that messed up, that on the, you know, the door. She knows the, yeah, she has, she, the thing is she knows, you know, she knows the, the worst places that I've, that I've ended up, you know, and, 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 you can't put a value on that, you know, and she's just, she's just, she rocks, man. She's, she's hot. You hear she's that, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, it, you it, rock. it's awesome to actually look at somebody that, you know, that you've known forever and just be like, you're, you as just this person as a whole are, are like more m- sort of mystical and beautiful and strange and, 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 you know, so awesome to love, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, a couple of quick questions. These are just r- fast. Are you related to Vince McMahon? I'm not related. <laughs> at Angela and Ferguson. Come on, Angela. What kind of question is that? My friends. Or Ed McMahon? No, no, no. Or Jim <laughs> McMahon. But I lived in the, lived in Chicago when Jim McMahon was the quarterback for the Bears, and we would always get the best seats oh, when my dad would call in to wow. get a reservation. With Back in the, the day, yeah. Super Bowl shuffle shit. Yep, Ariel J93, would uh, you ever get Jack's mannequin back together for a union tour, even 15th anniversary of Everything in Transit 2020? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, like, I play with two of the two of the four members of Jack's mannequin. Even my last tour, Bob, my guitar player from Jack's, was out with us. So, yeah, I mean, my priority is, is, to, is to create new, beautiful shit you know and 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 so yeah i mean i don't doubt like jacks will play shows you know a show here and there at some point for sure but it's like not the first thing on my mind for sure uh tell us about the nonprofit real quick yeah so dear jack foundation sort of began in the in the wake of my my uh survivorship and um we've really become just this amazing force for adolescents and young adults who both faced uh, or in treatment for cancer or who have survived it. Um, so yeah, we do these two amazing programs. One's called the life list, uh, where we help, 
patients who are in treatment, uh, adolescents and young adults, 15 to 39 is basically our, our age range, super underserved demographic, way under-researched, you know, have worse, uh, uh, you know, have seen almost no improvement in their survival outcomes in 30 years compared to every other demographic that's exploded. Um, so yeah, one of the big programs is we get in the, we get in the hospital room with these patients and we say, let's develop a list of, of, items and things that you want to do while you're in treatment so that we can keep you focused on the the bright side of things and give you give you things to look forward to and, you know incredible stuff kids have gone to tapings of SNL or we built a play set for a family who just wanted a place to, you know mom just wanted to see a place for her kids to play so that you know when she was convalescing effectively she didn't have to leave the house you know these really powerful things that have built communities uh, of of young adults and the program that I'm really proud of that's informed largely by the experience my wife and I had in survivorship where we really didn't have anybody there to guide us and, and did it so very alone. Uh, we created a, a program called Breathe Now where um, we host- uh, You have a song. You can, oh, well, there's a song that you can breathe. Yeah, it's kind of, it's rooted in- Yeah, yeah you so, can breathe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Breathe Now is is is, is sort of the, the title came from that song. And, and the, uh, the program is really beautiful where we get, um, where we get six couples, um, into a into a space usually a very beautiful space for four days uh on a retreat uh, that's effectively a wellness retreat where they do yoga and breath work and meditation and things like sound healings and 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 uh social breakouts where both the survivor and their spouse or partner advocate who went through it with them kind of get to talk about their experience and get to meet other people who went through it and also just learn tools via a really, you know, great, uh, uh, social worker, uh, psychologist that, that comes along with us, uh, to approach survivorship and the, tr and the difficulty of survivorship, uh, in a healthier way. And that program has been just, uh, it's been in, in, insane how, how much growth you see from these couples. And yeah, we're raising, we're in the process of raising money right now. We're doing a thing called the 200K challenge where we're trying to raise $200,000 before our benefit show in November. And, uh, you know, our, our target is, is, is really close in sight, uh, especially compared to other years that we've done this. It's pretty exciting. Well, Rob would love to donate. Yeah. And I would love to donate. So we'll do that. Make so, sure we do that, Rob. I mean, right you after. guys, if you do 50,000 a piece, we could be done with this thing today. If you do 50,000, he loses his house. I've donated to Dear Jack. Yeah, of course yeah, he has. Yeah. So Dear Jack is the documentary. Um, this is a very talented, talented man and a good man, a man who's seen a lot, has faced death and wow. survived and has uh, a lot of love to share. And um, this has been a real treat. Thanks, I, I, man. I appreciate thank you, you being... for allowing me to be inside of you. Yeah, thank you for letting me uh, le letting me open myself up to you. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Thank it's, Rob. It's been a joy to have someone inside of me yeah today. there you go yeah. um so yeah this has been amazing uh what, what are you gonna sing do i have a choice in this i don't really know i honestly it's so funny because like all i've been doing for the last several days is like writing new music so my brain is fried with with uh, can you do uh i mean ohio's tough isn't it i could probably do that and yeah it might take a second but i could do that yeah, yeah i think so. i fucking love ohio i grew up in indiana give me a minute It'll yeah yeah let me work it out
Smallville Rewatch Podcast guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.